0: live from the heartland and the crossroads of america it's tony Katz today i've said it once i'll say it again you've said it once you should say it again don't stop saying it the indictments against president trump the presidential election the southern border the threat that is china Dear Lord, these are all huge stories. Nothing is bigger than the crime family that is the Bidens. Nothing. Nothing is bigger than Joe Biden being in the room when Hunter Biden was having these business conversations and clearly selling access, being on the phone, being at the dinners, that he knew, that he knew point blank, without question and without doubt, that what his son was doing. That he at least knew, even if you don't want to agree with that, that his son was there in the room and he was in the room with his son talking about business. It doesn't matter what he says uh, to Peter Ducey.
1: There's this testimony now where one of your son's former business associates is claiming that you... We're on speakerphone a lot with them, talking business. Is that what? You never talk business England? And I, I know you'd have
0: a lousy question. Well, what do you, it's, why is that a lousy question? Because it's not true. That's Joe Biden, the president of the United States, saying it's not true. But we know that it's true. You'll note that for all the testimony regarding Devin Archer, nobody said he lied. Dan Goldman, Congressman, wants to spin it. Well, he talked about, you see, he was discussing the illusion of access. Hunter Biden was providing the illusion of, of access to his father. Well, that's not what Devin Archer said. That's what Representative Dan Goldman said about what Devin Archer was was viewing. That was his words, not Devin Archer's words. But it's not a denial that's not saying that Devin Archer isn't believable. That is saying clearly that Devin Archer is believable. Which is not the tact I thought that the political left would take. But they are so flummoxed by all of this. Forced to realize that Joe Biden has been lying to America and Corinne jean has been lying to America. Joe Biden knew about Hunter Biden's business dealings. They did discuss them. He was on phone calls. He was at dinners. Sorry. Your argument that he didn't know is an argument for Biden's senility. Do you want us to use that in 2024? Because we will. Either Joe Biden knew that his son was selling access or Joe Biden is as old and as senile as we say he is. Pick one. Pick one. I got all day, son. I got all day. You tell me. Which one is it? Is it? that joe biden knew that his son was corrupt or or I'll, i'll give you another option is it that joe biden is so wholly senile he doesn't know what's happening around him that's a tough one that's a tough one there well then of course there are now bank records As put forth by James Comer, who is in charge of House oversight, um, provided to The Washington Times, these records confirm the testimony from IRS whistleblowers that millions of dollars flowed to Hunter Biden around the time his father met with uh, certain um, uh, oligarchs from Russia, Kazakhstan, Ukrainian uh, oligarchs while he was vice president. Oversight committee has identified more than $20 million paid to Hunter Biden and his associates. The money distributed to, as the Washington Times puts it, 10 Biden family members, including President Biden's grandchildren. No word yet on whether or not Navy got any cash. Navy is Hunter Biden's daughter via the stripper uh, who Joe Biden only started talking about last Tuesday. That's, That's it right there. There's a bank trail of money and Joe Biden saying, I never spoke to Hunter about his business dealings. Come now, come now, come now. That's not it. Documents show $3.5 million going to a Hunter Biden shell company. Documents show a payment of $142,300 from a Kazakh oligarch so Hunter Biden can buy a sports car. Man, there is money in politics. And the Biden crime family is aptly named. Bring on the investigation. I'm Tony Katz. It's not just a win. It is a huge, wonderful, massive, terrific, spellbinding win. This is the FDA being told that you cannot overregulate the cigar industry, but it's far bigger than just the cigar industry. This is about overreach of the federal government and about how one judge said enough and maybe just maybe that could start a very worthwhile ripple effect. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, 833, got Tony, 833-468-8669, find everything at TonyKatz.com, and you guys know I host the largest cigar and bourbon radio review program in the country, Eat, Drink, Smoke, Eat EatDrinkSmokeShow.com, this rule is huge, as I said, beyond huge, and beyond important in so many ways for the manufacturer, for the small business owner in the cigar industry, and outside of the cigar industry, let me bring them on. This is Joshua Habersky. He is the, uh, I believe it is the Deputy Executive Director of the Premium Cigar Association and Glenn Loop. Uh, right there, the state advocacy director of the Premium Cigar Association, premiumcigars.org. I know Glenn from his days uh, at Cigar Rights of America, where I am a lifetime member, and I am a member in good standing of the Premium Cigar Association, uh, just a member. We have no other financial relationship. Uh, Josh, I want to start with you, and I want to start with what in the world we learn from uh, this ruling, this judge, Amit Meta who earlier, just maybe a year ago, had questioned the FDA's decisions here, saying this was arbitrary and capricious, now throwing out what we're calling the deeming rule. Walk us through it. What was the deeming rule, and what has Judge Meta now said?
2: Yeah, so the you know the, this was a monumental victory. As you mentioned, last year uh, the decision was in our favor, that it was found to be arbitrary and capricious. Um, now this was the remedy of, of that ruling. And, um, this was the overall regulation of premium cigars and the authority to do such by the food and drug administration. And, uh, they messed that up. This has been a seven year, um, litigation process, you know, warning labels, were a piece of it pre-market review. Those were uh, two other cases involved in this, so kind of a three-part series, and uh, this was kind of the the grand finale. In that grand finale,
0: um, it was much more than just saying, hey, you're overstepping. It's saying that you don't have jurisdiction to treat cigars like cigarettes. And for a lot of people, that is still anathema to them. They don't understand why, why it's a smoking product. Why isn't it treated the same?
2: Give the breakdown here. Why isn't it treated the same? Yeah, you know, they did neglected to address a lot of the comments that were filed. Um, You know, folks like Cigar Rights of America uh, filed comments that said premium cigars are different. If you look at user profiles, usage patterns, health effects, and you know, the FDA ignored it. Uh, They didn't follow the science and um you know i think that the judge took him to task on that he took him to the task on the merits but at the end of the day um the jurisdiction and on the deeming rule um violated the administrative procedures act and um you know we're, we're very excited for this victory because it means a lot to consumers retailers and manufacturers
0: glenn the, these kinds of fights happen in the hall of halls of Congress. There's actually some great shots of you and Josh just last week. The Premium Cigar Association and the Boutique Cigar Association, Dr. Gabby Caffey, uh, Armin Capellian, and, and 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 others, really working to try and get both the Cigar Caucus, which now exists in the House, and others to understand these differences and the very mom and pop kind of world that cigars is. This isn't the world of of uh, you know, big business. This is actually the world of small business. How difficult is it to get the average cigar smoker, right? P- people who are just enjoying a cigar to understand the detailed politics uh that we're talking about here, that it isn't about a question of right of right versus left, it's whether or not you get to enjoy a product that you want to enjoy.
1: Well, that's why this moment capsulizes the parallel path that this fight's been going down for not just seven years, but nine years. I was in an Indiana hotel room when this deeming rule first came out. And ironically enough, I'll be back near that same hotel room this coming Sunday night. But this deeming rule came out nine years ago, and we knew then that the politics and the approach, the strategy that the cigar industry had to carry out had to be fundamentally different than anything it had ever done in its history. You're absolutely right. It's a small business issue. It's an American small business issue. And we highlighted that through the public comment period process, where over 65,000 comments were filed by small businesses and consumers across America. The premium cigar industry never had to play this political game before in its entire history. All of a sudden, we were petitioning the White House, we were petitioning Congress, we were supporting premium cigar exemption legislation in Congress. We were rounding up congressional co-sponsors in the House and the Senate like never before. Politicians in in the United States Congress that had never tried to differentiate premium cigars from other tobacco products. I've said a thousand times since this process began, if there was ever any redeeming value of what we just went through for the last nine years, is that it forced this industry to study itself. And the culmination of that was the filing of public comment period pieces like this, just to give you a dramatic illustration right. of what had to be filed. This is over a $275,000 study of this industry breaking down that we're not the problem. We're not the problem in public health. We're not the problem in public ac- public youth access. We're not the problem on adverse public health consequences like inhalation, addiction, and mortality. And judge made his decision, made it very clear they ignored what we submitted
0: now now that's that's part of this story here right so this is if you go to the premium cigar association website uh, as part as a party to this litigation the premium cigar association applauds this important decision by judge meta the evidence from the being uh, from the beginning it should say has been clear that premium cigars ought not to be regulated or deemed as the fda had asserted for over a decade the point there josh is that the fda knows the difference the fda knows the difference between a cigarette and a premium cigar so two questions for you first how do you describe it the differences between a premium cigar and a cigarette and then the follow-up to to glenn's point the fda knew they weren't describing it right why didn't they just admit that they were wrong from the beginning
2: Well, I think, you know, we have a clear definition of a premium cigar. The judge gave us eight points. It has to meet that criteria. Whole leaf, tobacco, vegetable, gum, and water. Those are the three components to it. Um, And, uh, you know, they are vastly different than other combustible products that are out there. Um, The research says that, you know, I think that the FDA... uh, you know, it's it's much more convenient to have this one-size-fits-all regulation. And that's what they tried to do. That's what they had tried to apply to premium cigars. And they were taken to task. I mean, you, you know, each... Tobacco product out there is, is different. You know, the association we represent, pipe tobacco, that's also very different than cigarettes or, or vapor products or what, whatever is out there. And I think that, you know, the FDA, in, in looking at this, luckily, we're not under their, their, their authority currently, but the, uh, they need to examine and do some soul searching as they regulate other products out there.
0: Yeah, the uh, the the ruling looked like uh, this right here: Cigar Association of America versus the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, for the reasons set forth in the court's memorandum opinions. Judgment is entered in favor of plaintiffs. The final deeming rule is vacated insofar as it applies to premium cigars, which, of course, uh, is is about that definition. Of premium cigars. So uh, following just that a little bit further, Glenn, maybe in, in your words, the difference between a premium cigar and the cigar that you might get at a local convenience store.
1: Well, we had to go to great pains to differentiate ourselves. And we did it both in a physical context of that, that this is an all natural product. And that resonated, I think, with not only the judge, but with some bureaucrats at the FDA. Otherwise, there would not have been this recognition that exemption should have been on the table. And the moment that they put the possibility of exemption on the table said that we ought to be treated differently. Josh is absolutely right. There was this diligent effort for a one-size-fits-all mentality and approach in a bureaucratic scheme And in fact, if you read this original deeming rule that came out in in March, April 25th, 2014, there was a painstaking effort to equate us to cigarettes. I mean, almost every page of this said there's not a bloody amount of difference. When we know that due to the lack of inhalation, and again, the lack of equating us with addiction and mortality, we proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that statistically... We're a non-factor, and that's yeah. one of the reasons that from the beginning of this legal case to today, the FDA itself has said we're on the lowest rung of the ladder for, for enforcement, and by saying that, they, they've admitted time and again, we're not the problem, but yeah, yeah, yet. Yeah. Let's treat you like a pack of cigarettes.
0: Right. And and this is much more a conversation about politicos uh, on any side of the aisle. This this isn't a Republican Democrat issue. There are plenty of Democrats in the state of Florida, for example, and other places that are absolutely with the Premium Cigar Association, with uh, the, the industry, because so much of their world is based in that industry. This doesn't actually become a political issue. This becomes rather an ideological issue and one that isn't based On data, as you talk about, even some of that that medical uh, data that shows where premium cigars are in relationship to other things, not being the same product, not an inhaled product, uh, other things like that. Uh, Give me an idea of how this affects the mom and pop shop. Josh, I'll I'll start with you. Josh Habersky, uh, Deputy Executive Director of the Premium Cigar Association and Glenn Loop, State Advocacy Director of the Premium Cigar Association, premiumcigars.org. Josh, talk to me about you're now talking to the mom and pop shops. If you were going to explain to them how this ruling, the throwing out of the deeming rule, affects them,
2: how do you describe it? Yeah, uh, really, two main things. You can have more products on your shelves, and that's something that you know we, throughout these lawsuits, we've been able to score those victories. Uh, but it affirms, you know, that that our premium cigars they they will have left less, less hurdles to g- cross. And then secondly, uh, the cost controls of premium cigars. If you have regulatory compliance, it adds to uh, the cost of the overall product by striking these things down, uh, testing requirements and uh, pre-market review and warning labels, a lot of these other pieces. Um, you know those would have added to costs which you know would have made it more difficult for small businesses to operate and for all of us as end consumers of premium cigars to afford them if you go elsewhere outside of the united states and look at the prices of cigars in canada and in europe it's uh they're astronomical and a lot of that has to do with governmental compliance costs and regulations
1: i had a a meeting with the, a member of the United States Congress and the United States Senate staff in a humidor, in a humidor, and we asked all the retailers from the state to join us, and we had about 15 retailers in a walk-in humidor, and I physically went around the humidor, and I said, this company can't be afford to be regulated. This company cannot afford to be regulated. This company cannot afford to be regulated, and by, and I was dead flat serious and calling them out. And I said to the people in the small businesses that were in that humidor with me, with the congressional staff, I said, What happens when 50% of the companies in this humidor right now cannot afford to be regulated? What happens to your business on Main Street, Portland, Main Street, Des Moines, Iowa, Main Street, Omaha, Nebraska? And they said, We're out of business. We're out of business. And we had a definitive study that was reinforced by the United States Small Business Administration that this is one of the only regulations that they've ever seen where the cost of compliance equaled 100% of the profit margin for every company. Now, what does that say? What does that say when the Office of Advocacy for the United States Small Business Administration, as an independent advisor to Congress on regulation, says every dollar of compliance equals every dollar of profit
0: it says to me that judge meta has done us all a favor and the elimination of the steaming rule requires a party and a celebration glenn loop josh haberski premium cigar association premium cigars.org gentlemen i appreciate you taking the time to be with us more is coming up i'm tony katz this is tony katz today groups clergy in indianapolis want a police chief randall taylor to resign tony katz good to be with you find everything at tony now as we know indianapolis isn't the only city dealing with tremendous issues violence issues crimes is- issues uh, uh, total degradation of society uh, of, of social society, collapse. How else could one possibly describe it? It is what it is. Small cities like Bloomington, larger cities like Indianapolis, what they consider large cities uh, like like Atlanta, Los Angeles, New York, D.C., uh, Detroit, Chicago, all of it, all of it. A D.C. is going to have, it's on pace to have its most murders ever. Now, the connective tissue in these cities having issues is, of course, the progressive politics that drive them. That's not debate. That is connective tissue. What connects these cities is indeed the progressivism. And there is, in far too many cities, although I certainly couldn't say every city, I can't see in every, say in every corner of every city, no one's speaking up. I have spoken about the state of Indiana and how it has failed on, on a level of civic leadership to address the issues because no one speaks publicly. Where is the condemnation of, of the mayor of Indianapolis, for example, Joe Hogsett, or this Indianapolis City County Council, for failing to do their job? It's been eight years of, of Hogsett in Indianapolis. The city is far worse than it was eight years ago. That's not, that's not even debate. Every measure. And this guy is running for a third term. We have seen these cities where the prosecutor, like in San Francisco, Chase Bowden, was, was taken out of office, removed from office because of the radical leftist policies. The people of San Francisco know they're not safe. In Los Angeles, they tried. With George Gascon, they just failed on, uh, to, to deliver in terms of the numbers of signatures. To, uh, was it the number of signatures or the vote to get him out of office? And L.A. continues to fail when it comes to homelessness and other things. My wife was uh, shopping in, in the Indianapolis area, at 86 in Michigan, uh, in in the the parking lot of was it a Marshalls? In the parking lot of the Marshalls, hi, would you like to buy some candy to benefit really not an organization? We just pocket the money, but we say it's for kids, and therefore you'll give us money, right? Uh, No, 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 thanks. Uh, by the way, that's exactly what they mean. No, thanks, I'm good. But not from a street corner walking up to women alone while they're getting into their cars. Not in any way uh, a, a threat? Not in any way intimidating. My wife felt it was intimidating. Someone's going to tell her that she's not allowed to feel that way. What about the women walking around with a dollar bill in their hand? Money. Give money. Right up to people while they're getting into their cars after shopping. This is not the sign of a quality environment. It's not the sign of a quality city. And us in Indiana would want the capital city to be a a quality city, no matter where we're from. We want Bloomington to be quality. We want West West Lafayette to be quality. We want Fort Wayne and South Bend and Muncie to be quality. We want Evansville and Jeffersonville to be quality. We want this, but we're not getting it. And in so many of these cities, so few people speak out. At least that's certainly true in Indianapolis until this. We call for Chief Randall Taylor's resignation in light of his conduct as chief of police here in Indianapolis and call for Mayor Joe Hogsett to begin an open search for a new chief of police with meaningful and inclusive community involvement. This, according to Reverend David Green, President of Concerned Clergy of Indianapolis. Them, along with the Baptist Ministers Alliance, fed up with IMPD's leadership. Um Uh, To the extent that I am thrilled to hear people speaking up about the problems in Indianapolis and not staying silent, not engaged in ridiculous levels of cowardice and shamefulness, but actively addressing the issues in the city of Indianapolis, I say bravo. That is what is necessary. The issue here is, is this the correct person to be looking at? According to Reverend Green, there is, a, there is clearly an overcommitment to nothing better happen downtown, but we don't treat the north side or the east side the same way. Well, that's absolutely correct. As he stated, quote, as long as the violence is in some communities, that's okay, but it will not be tolerated in other areas such as Broad Ripple. Well, we've seen that play out. Absolutely true. They're fine with what happens over here or over there, but, oh, if it happens here, then we got to pay attention to it. The argument being, of course, these are important areas and the other areas are not important. You've got the president of the Baptist Ministers Alliance, Dr. Wayne Moore, saying they want the community to trust the process. The process has never worked for IMPD nor for the community. Well, I don't know if you could say never, Things were certainly safer under a Ballard administration, weren't they? So what changed? What changed to bring about an unsafe city? This is where, uh, concerned clergy and Baptist Ministers Alliance, we have a disagreement. I don't argue that Chief Randall Taylor is the best. I know the statement from Joe Hogsett. Under Chief Taylor's leadership, IMPD has instituted many of its most important transparency and accountability measures, including body cameras for all patrol officers, the distribution of critical incident review videos. The work of IMPD has been critical in reducing criminal homicides by 16% last year and an additional 12% this year. Chief Taylor has my support. Well, no doubt, Mayor Hogsett. The question is, why are these members of clergy supporting you? The concerned clergy and the Baptist Minister Alliance, I believe, are focused on the wrong subject. Why are you not focused on the mayor? What would make you think that the mayor appointing a new chief is going to make anything better? And dear Lord, can we discuss inclusive community involvement and what the bloody heck that means? What is it that you're looking for? To be consulted? Or are you looking for the murders to stop? And what, my members of the clergy, are you doing with your own flocks to help make it better? What statements do you make? What do you say from the pulpit? What is it that you are telling those parishioners every Sunday? What is it that you say when you walk out into your community? And how many times do you do that? Oh, one has to look inward before looking outward. But that doesn't mean you don't look outward. It doesn't mean that there isn't a fundamental flaw. In what is happening in Indianapolis and cities all across the country, an absolute failure of leadership from the very top. Why look at the chief when the mayor is right there at a city county council that has shown you time and again that the lip service will not lead to lives saved? They will come to you, they'll ask you for a donation, they'll ask the congregation, they will stand there and tell you the good fight that they're putting on. But what is it that they're actually doing, and why do you keep inviting them? Now maybe you're going to tell me, Tony, we don't invite them. Tony, we don't, we, don't, we don't invite them. Well, I ask you how many of your flock are going to keep voting for them. We've got an election In four months, concerned clergy, Baptist Ministers Alliance. How many amongst you have looked at your congregation on a Sunday and said, vote for Jefferson Shreve. We can't take this anymore. Well, Tony, you're not allowed to electioneer from the pulpit. Stop it. We all know what's happening inside so many churches in so many ways with their political ideology. Would you stop it? Don't you dare lie to me in the eyes of the Lord. Are you out of your mind? When will you say to your congregants, vote for Jefferson Shreve. We have to try something else. Replace the mayor. Replace the, the, the police chief, you say. I say replace the mayor, and then by definition you'll replace the police chief. One would assume Or certainly you'll replace what it is the police chief is doing and how it's being done, which is being set by the mayor who has decided to be his own public safety officer and that has meant more dead Hoosiers on the streets of Indianapolis. Can I get an amen from the congregation? Gentlemen. Ladies. What are you doing? You're having the right conversation. I applaud it, but... I I ask with, with, with directness, why is this the direction? Why is it about Chief Taylor? I don't argue that he's the best police chief. I'm not making that argument at all. I think I've met the man once in my life, by the way. I'm not saying he's the best police chief. I would say it to him. Shouldn't the issue be the leadership at the top? Something you could do something about. A change that you can affect today, not tomorrow, not through begging, not through a press conference, but today in your congregation, in your church. You can make that change right now. You can be proactive. Change the leadership of the city of Indianapolis. Make those elected officials listen By changing who those elected officials are. Your whole lives, your congregation has been told you vote for Democrats. Your whole lives, your congregation has been told you have to be about this because the other people know. You have voted for these people, and these people have let you down again and again and again and again and again and again and again. again. When do you say enough? You have a chance. You have an election that's four months away. Three months away. Well, start encouraging your people to vote. Don't worry about any of the rules. You're trying to save lives, right? You're trying to make things better, right? Well, then go do it. But you got to focus at the top because the fish rots from the head. I'm Tony Katz. This is Tony Katz Today. So yes, this economy is the mess that you thought it was. Doesn't matter what Joe Biden says about Bidenomics. It doesn't matter how he tries to spin it and tries to make you think, oh my gosh, it's working. The Financial Times
1: and the Wall Street Journal have started to call my plan Binomics. Initially, I don't think they meant it with great deal of respect. <laughs> with all due respect for them, our plan is working. It's working. The economy has grown since I took office. It grew faster in the, in the last quarter than anyone expected. And, you know, we've created over 13
0: million brand-new jobs since I took office. in less than three years. No, he didn't. He hasn't created any jobs at all. That's a lie. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's a lie to say he created jobs. People going back to work is not job creation. He's lying. But the report today shows that inflation is up. There haven't been declines. It is up. Prices are up 3.2%. 3.2, up from 3% in June, below the forecast of 3.3. The cost of what it takes for you to live your life is up. That's all there is to it. If I take a look at all items, it's 3.2%. If I see all items less food and energy, It's 4.7%. All items, CPI is up 0.2 for the month of July. All items, less food and energy, up 0.2 for the month of July. Not down, not trending less. That's not what we're seeing. I can go through every bit of this with you. What matters in these numbers is that you are aware of what's happening. You are aware. If you want to sit there and tout the consumer price index less food and energy, go right ahead, except you need food and energy. So maybe these numbers matter and maybe they matter greatly because we have always known that the price of everything has gone up. We feel the prices going up. We are aware of it. We have changed patterns because of it. Well, not everybody has changed uh, patterns. There is a story from Fox Business that says more drivers spend $1,000 dollars a month on their car payments. What? A thousand dollars a month. Because interest rates have gone up. The percentage of drivers spending over $1,000 a month on payments is at an all-time high of 17.1% in the second quarter compared to 16.8% in the first quarter. The amount spent on average, $733 in the second quarter. That's the average car payment. Can I ask what you all do for a living? Because I clearly am doing it all wrong. What, being in radio? Oh, 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 you have the car payment, but you can't afford the car payment, so it ends up in credit cards and other things. Oh, oh, it's all for show. You know how much of that is true, right? You start really taking a look at, oh, how do the neighbors afford this? How do the neighbors afford that? The answer is they don't. This is debt structure on debt structure on debt structure. You know what proves this? Take this increase in pricing, take a look at this conversation about car payments with increased interest rates, and then remember that credit card debt has topped a trillion dollars for the first time. I don't know how many more fuses can be lit. Add to this the credit crunch where we're not lending to people because of fear of not being able to pay back the loans. Nothing signals good times, and I'm bothered by it. Because I want the good times. I would rather inflation down than up. I don't win anything. It's not like I get a cookie. Hell, I can't even afford the cookie anymore. These numbers are not great. This economy is not great. And I fear that when it bottoms, it's going to bottom ugly. We will discuss it more. We'll break it down more. Find everything at TonyCats.com tomorrow, everyone. Take care.